I bought a horse called Norin, and he was difficult. He had trotter blood in his background, and he had a difficult mouth. And as I'd be sailing to the big jump, if I had to steady him, he would break to a trot, and I would end up trotting the six-foot oxer. So he was really a handful and really a fun horse for the owners because everybody was under their chairs all the time, could barely watch. It was so hair-raising. And I ended up, um, he was one of my biggest winners. I won the Invitational with him. I won the Derby. I won the President's Cup. And I would say that, that moment in time when I was finally doing it by myself, by myself. I mean, I had a great team of people around me, but where I was making the decisions of the training and the schedule and the blacksmith and all the things you need to learn to make it go well, um, that was a very rewarding time. Horseman's Podcast, a show featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Jocelyn Pierce, and this week's episode is with legendary show jumper Katie Monahan Prudant. Katie's stellar career in the hunter-jumper world began as a junior with wins in both the AHSAA National Hunter Seat Medal Final and the ASPCA McLean National Championship, followed by multiple championships in the hunter ring before she emerged as an international jumper star. A member of the 1986 Gold Medal World Champion Show Jumping Team, she has won almost every major Grand Prix in the United States and was named American Grand Prix Association Rider of the Year three times. In 2000, she was named Coach of the Year for Developing Riders by the U.S. Olympic Committee. She currently runs an international training program with her husband, French equestrian Henri Prudent, and their son, Adam. They divide their time between Wellington, Middleburg, and France. I spoke to Katie almost a year ago in Wellington after working on a story and photo shoot for her feature story about understanding and controlling stride length on the approach to and between obstacles, which will appear in an upcoming issue of Practical Horse. During our conversation, Katie shared what she learned from competing in Europe, how she creates a bond with her horses, the importance of having a system, what she sees many riders struggling with, and more. Now let's jump right into this episode as Katie shares how she first became involved with horses. I, I remember from my earliest memory just wanting to be around horses, and my parents, who were not horsey at all, my father was an engineer, my mother was a housewife, neither had ever ridden. They recognized at an early age that I was just passionate about horses. Now, where does that come from? I don't know, maybe another lifetime. But it's all I ever wanted to do and all I ever wanted to be was someone with horses. So they started by getting you some lessons and... When I was five, we went to a little local stable and they leased... A little quarter horse. Uh, I lived in the Chicago area and and that horse was called Dinky. So I rode Dinky for a year and then I went to ride with Martha Jane who was a, a maybe great-grandmother now of some of the Janes, okay. Charlie Jane, mm-hmm. Alex Jane, the Janes who are still in this horse business mm-hmm. and very active. 
I rode with her and she had a school horse that was 16 years old and it was a little quarter horse named Tina. And my parents bought Tina for me. And Tina went on to be state champion and take me to Madison Square Garden. Oh, wow. And that was, that was the beginning of it all. And at what point did you decide to really focus on show jumping? Like, this, this is what I want to do, and I, I want to become a professional. Did that thought kind of enter your mind? Until I was um, 13 or 14, I rode mostly hunters, only hunters, until I was 14. Uh, and did the equitation. And in those days, there was no children's jumper or low junior. If you wanted to do junior jumpers, you had to go from doing the hunters right into the highs. Mm. And so it was a big transition. And at 14, um, Christine Tauber, who was the head of the Federation for several years, she was from my hometown. Her name was Christine Jones, and she had ridden on the U.S. equestrian team under Bert Denemethy. And she gave me one of her old horses to start in the junior jumpers, and that's how that started. And then when I met George Morris, that was the beginning of the rest of my life. Uh, many things opened up for me. Because you were 15 when you won the McClay, wasn't it? Yeah, and then yeah. And then you won the medal finals when after that. Yeah. I mean, what was that like? I mean, 15 winning the Well, McClay. I was from my first from the Chicago area, and then we moved to Michigan. I was, at a young age, a real whiz in the equitation. Mm -hmm. I just always loved to show off. I had an, a nice quarter horse. This was after Tina. My second horse was a quarter horse called Milltown. And he was just a great horse, easy to ride and very obedient. I had gotten ribbons in the medal finals. And so it was a big goal of mine to, to win because I thought I could. And I mean, beyond that, you've had a ton of competitive, competitive success throughout your career. Is there any kind of success that stands out to you or is most meaningful to you? When I first started Plain Bay Farm, in Virginia, and that was in around 78. I had always ridden for other people. Of course, by then I was really into wanting to do the highest level and the Olympics and the big division. Uh, but I had always ridden horses for other people where I wasn't really responsible for the daily care or training. <clears throat> then when I got my own farm, I said to myself, well, if mistakes are going to be made, I need to be the one to make them so that I can learn. And I went to uh, two of my customers, fathers, Mr. Inman and Mr. Sanford, and I said, I would like to go to Europe and buy a horse, and if I put up a certain amount of money, will you match it so that I can get a Grand Prix horse? Of course, in those days, the prices weren't like they are now, and they said they would, and I went to Europe and I bought, I bought a horse called Norin. And he was difficult. He had trotter blood in his background and he had a difficult mouth. And as I'd be sailing to the big jump, if I had to steady him, he would break to a trot and I would end up trotting the six foot oxer. So he was really a handful and really a fun horse for the owners because 
everybody was under their chairs all the time, could barely watch. It was so hair-raising. And I ended up, um, he was my, one of my biggest winners. I won the Invitational with him. I won the Derby. I won the President's Cup. And I would say that that moment in time when I was finally doing it by myself, by myself, I mean, I had a great team of people around me, but where I was making the decisions of the training and the schedule mm -hmm. and the blacksmith and all the things you need to learn to make it go well, mm -hmm. um, that was a very rewarding time. And um, can you just talk a little bit about like what you got out of competing and being in Europe? I mean, I, I spoke to Laura Kraut a few months ago. She mentioned you as one of her biggest mentors and how you really you know, showed her what it was like to compete in Europe and how that really helped her. Can you just talk a little bit about how that influenced you? I was um, very lucky to start dating my now husband, Henri, in 1982. And of course, he's French. And I, um, he made it easy for me to make arrangements to go to Europe and to stable my horses so that I could compete over there. And in, in those days, not now everybody goes, but in those days, not many people just went over for the summer. And what I realized was that um, in America, even back then and more so now, showing is, is a real elitist sport. And many times in many classes, people go just to school their horse, mm -hmm. go in just to school pay the entry fee, they've paid to get here, they pay for the stall, and they go in just to school. What I realized in Europe was that most people I was competing against fed their families with the prize money that they won. There was no schooling your horse. If you wanted to win a ribbon, you had to go in there and give it your best shot every time. And I found that it was way more competitive than in America at that time. Not at the highest level. Of course, in the Grand Prix, everybody tries to win, and still. But at, at, in the lower classes and the first class of the day, and I always said to my kids, come on now. Now you're over here. You're going to go into the office and check out and see how much it costs you, which they probably hadn't done before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and can you talk about some of uh, your most influential or special horses and what they were like? My most influential, I, I had great horses, horses that I loved, careful, and they were all successful. I have to speak about my owners first, because first of all, Mr. Inman and Mr. Sanford, who bought Norrin, just opened up many doors for me. And then Mrs. Harriman, Mrs. Pamela Harriman, uh, became a, a big sponsor and owned horses that were all good and, and you know kept the governor special envoy. Anyway, she owned a lot of good horses for me, and that helped me keep my career on the upswing. Mm -hmm. And then the Firestones, Allison Firestone's parents owned horses for me. So first and foremost, you have to thank your owners over the years who bought horses and kept you going. And I had many very good horses. My, my best and most favorite horse was a horse called Belladonna. And she was way later in my career. After I had had uh, my fall where I hurt my mm -hmm. head. And it was pretty hard to come back from that because I had no depth perception. Mm -hmm. There was, and I was very lucky to get right to the hospital mm -hmm. and operated right away where it didn't do a ton of brain damage, but still there were some little things like my depth perception. Mm -hmm. It was hard to, it was hard to ride to the jumps because I didn't really see where I was. Mm -hmm. 
anyway, I got a horse called Belladonna, and she was a great, careful horse, and my one Grand Prix horse at that time. And she, if I was a little off on the distance, she would stop and throw me off. And so I had to figure out pretty quick how to not be off on my distances or I would be eating dirt. And it was a great inspiration at the time because it really pushed me to get back into a high competitive mode. And how do you create a bond with the horses that you ride? Well, like I said earlier, you have to love the horse. That has to be part of your psyche. And then to create a bond, I think you have to love the training and have an idea of what you want to achieve with that horse and then figure out how to make it happen. Could you talk a little bit about your training philosophy? I think everything has to be a system and a system that you follow where you, where you train the horses, most horses in the same way where they learn the same things like a kid going to school, gotta learn to read and write and add, add and subtract. All horses have to learn that. And then at the same time you have to be a very good horseman and understand the physical apparatus of the horse and when you can push them and when you can't, when they feel sore, how you keep them sound. What we have to remember always is that the horse is the athlete here. We're just the pilot. You know, we're just sitting in the driver's seat and driving them. The, the horse is the one who has to feel great and be in top condition. And I think all of that goes into becoming a successful rider. And you obviously do a ton of teaching. Are there now I do more than ever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are there some common themes you see with riders, students, of them, like certain things that they struggle with? What I try to give to the students that I have now is a feeling of being tough. Because I think in America we're getting softer and softer, and I've said this before, it's not any student's fault, it's, it's the way America is. Always blame somebody else for your problems, always you know, find, find a way to make an excuse. I try to make my kids tough. I try to make them realize that if they want to succeed, they have to face every problem and work it out and do the best they can and, and you know, not, not give up, not be a defeatist. I think it's easy in today's world to, to try to find excuses. And what do you think makes a good horseman? What makes a good horseman? I think some <laughs> I think someone is a good horseman if they if they really try to let me say it right try to understand what the horse is feeling and how to get that horse in his in his mind to be at the at where he can compete the best and that's maybe that's maybe only a good horseman for doing competition. There are many great horsemen who never compete. Mm -hmm. They just look at the soundness of the horse. I just one of my favorite stories lately is there's a great, great vet in Europe who was um, at one show. He, he doesn't usually do the uh, veterinary inspection where they watch the horses jog, but at this one show he was doing it. He would watch the horse for like three steps and then turn around and do his paperwork. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked him, he goes, 
if you can't see if a horse is lame in three steps, you, you know, sometimes they jog them up and down and up and down. And it just made me laugh because a great horseman has a feel for horses and has watched them enough to be able to see and develop an idea of what's bothering the horse. The soundness of the horse is the key to having a horse to do anything well, whether it's a pleasure horse or a com competitive horse. If he's not sound, he's not going to do his best for you. So your job is to figure out, without him being able to say, hey, my right leg hurts, you've got to be able to figure it out. By studying him. By studying him and, and watching him and reading his signs. What are, what are your other interests besides riding? <laughs> Henri and I, our whole family, Adam, our son, who's 30 now, and Henri and I, we all love to cook. And you can tell because we're not Adam, but Henri and I are always too fat and we're always on diets. But we love to cook. We love to um, eat and drink with friends. We love to play games. We play backgammon and Scrabble. As a matter of fact, um, I was just with Laura Kraut the other night and Margie and her husband, Steve, we're all going to have games night for the Super Bowl oh, here. Fun. We play all sorts of rummy cubes, different games. It's fun. And do you and Henri and Adam all take turns making dinner? Well, when Adam's in the kitchen, we all have to stand back because he's the real <laughs> chef. And then most evenings, if we're cooking, Henri and I do it together. And mm -hmm. what we try to do, you know, we travel so much and we're always on the road. What we have made a pact to do is wherever we are in the world, and it's usually a different place every week, one night that week, we try to find the very best restaurant mm -hmm. in that area and we go have a lovely dinner. We love wines. Mm -hmm. um, Adam and Henri are way better than I am, but we have a cousin who's a wine connoisseur, and so we, you know, we try to smell it and taste it and think we know what we're doing. It's fun. It's fun. If you didn't have a career with horses, what would you want to do instead? You're going to laugh at this. When I was in uh, college, I wanted to be a journalist. Really? I love to Come write. I love to watch. <laughs> I love to inspect things, and yeah. But I can't imagine my life without horses. Sure. It just could never have happened. Yeah. Do you have any advice for your younger self, looking back? Oh, yeah, you know that saying, if I had known then what I know now. Um, yes, here would be my advice to my younger self. If you have an injury, give it time to heal. Because now, in my older self, I have a lot of aches and pains in my back, in my hips, in my shoulders. And when I was younger, if I got hurt, I didn't care. I just kept going. And I never, ever let myself heal. So I guess my advice would be, if you get an injury, two or three weeks out of your life is nothing if you would just take the time to heal properly. And I know a lot of people yeah, are like that. Are well. like that. Yeah. So if you just take that minute to let yourself heal. All right, so if there's a huge competition coming that you don't want to miss, then do it. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can do anything through any pain or injury. But if you have the time, let it heal. That would, I guess, be my one piece of advice. Yeah. Can you think of maybe one of the most humbling moments you can remember as a rider or trainer? Well, you know, 1986, I'm trying to think. I had, a, I had a great, great year, winning, winning, winning. And then actually, you know, it was later when I had my head accident, mm -hmm. and then I, I was fine. But when I rode, I couldn't, I had no strength left, and I couldn't see a distance, and it was like, mm -hmm from one week to the next. I had always said when I was teaching, 
you know, you don't have to be strong. You have to have a good connection with the horse and the right aids and this and that. And I realized that I had been so strong my whole life that I didn't even realize I was strong. So when I had no strength, it was very humbling to realize that. And, I, and my teaching changed. I think I became much more sympathetic and understanding of, of people who physically have a really hard time doing it. And speaking about the advice you just gave about taking more time if you were, you know, if you had an accident, had you wished that you'd taken a little bit more time after your head injury? Well, you know, I wasn't physically hurt. I, I was internally hurt. And all the time in the world, it would, just, it would just be taking that time for it to heal. And I wanted it to heal doing the things that I wanted it to know. You know, I had to start over from babyhood for to be able to have depth perception and feel the balance and this and that um on that particular injury no i don't i i think i did the best i could do took a year and i guess um, one final question kind of looking back on your lifetime of you know riding and teaching what do you think's been kind of the most memorable part of your career with horses you know, I'm so proud of the people that I taught when they were young who have gone on to be great, Beezy especially. Shay came to me as a junior. Um, she always had talent, but there was no telling back then where she was going to go with it. And she and Kim Prince, who was a student at the same time, they, they both in their own ways have become fabulous professionals in the business. Kim is a hardworking teacher. BZ is the best rider in the world. And so many of my students did go on to be professionals at different levels in the business. So I'm very proud that, that I was able to give them a love for what we do in such a way that they felt like they could go on and make a business out of it, which they did, a lot of them did. Thanks so much for chatting with me, You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Join us again for upcoming conversations with hunter trainer and rescue founder Ron Danta and eventer Courtney Cooper. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'm Jocelyn Pierce, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast.